Greetings, all. What is the good word? Thank you for stopping the scroll and spending some of your valuable time with us. This is the Coptimizer podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Flannelly, retired chief of police and all-around wannabe renaissance man. Here, we look to spend some time with leaders and pioneers that have a passion for public safety and those who look to build strong and resilient individuals and organizational cultures, both of which result in stronger communities. We look across industries with a focus on peak performance. Our biggest questions, what can I do to squeeze every little drop of life out of each day? How do I get a little bit better today than I was yesterday? And how can I tap into the energy that makes it all possible? While our focus is on first responders and those in public service, the lessons shared here on the Coptimizer podcast are universal. Our goal is to hire healthy, retire healthy, and maximize impact in our personal and professional lives in that time in between. To drive value and squeeze every drop out of our performance so we can be awesome for our families, our departments, and our communities. Better performing officers make for better performing organizations. This is not a complicated truth. It is the simple truth. From the top cop to the street cop and all those working in support of high performing organizations, this show is for you. It's time to Coptimize. Greetings, all. Welcome back to the Coptimizer podcast. We've got another exciting guest today, Jim Bontrager. Right up from uh, one, one of my Indiana home state compadres, uh, just uh, about two hours north of me up in Notre Dame territory. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. That's good to be here, brother. Hey, by the way, do you know the difference between Notre Dame and Cheerios? <laughs> no, I don't. Cheerios belong in a bowl. <laughs> just saying this. <laughs> Well, we could say that a lot about a lot of universities, but no, I well, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a, I'm an East Coast Catholic, right? I was born in uh, in Philadelphia, and you know, if you're from the East Coast and you're Catholic, it's it's like a, you have to become a Notre Dame fan. So as a youngster, I was my dad's a Penn State grad, so I grew up being a Penn State Notre Dame fan, and then I moved to West Lafayette, Indiana, and now I'm a Boilermaker. There you so, go. I, I give him a rough time because of dashed hopes, you know, every time he get fired up. My cousin, uh, he's an Alabama fan. And so then when you end up, I got my face rubbed in it so much that I need some uh, counseling. So I apologize to all the Notre Dame fans. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I'd heard that one. I wanted to, I might have to write that one down. Well, that was as bad as the one about West Lafayette. You know why the West Lafayette, they only have 14 holes at their golf courses? Because they never <laughs> get to the final four. <laughs> Oh gosh, I love my boilermakers. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... Yeah, you know, I have, and I've told this to a lot of people. I'm, I was originally, you know, growing up, I was a everything Philadelphia fan. So I was a Flyers fan. I was a Sixers fan. I was a Phillies fan. Uh, and you know, I moved out here, and it's the only thing you could watch was either it was WGN or TBS. So you either 
watch the Braves or you watch the Cubs. And if I chose to watch the Cubs because they're right up the road. So yeah, I went from being a, you know, a fan of a world series team in 1980 for the, uh, the Phillies to, to waiting forever for the, for my next team to do it, but they did it right. That's they, right. They eventually broke through. And I think my Boilermakers are eventually going to break through this year. It was a little tough losing to a 17 seed. <laughs> that was brutal though and so I, you got to laugh about it because otherwise you cry you know people are, hey, there's no such thing as a 17 seed i'm like yeah yeah there is it was a play-in team and and they they weren't even supposed to be there because they were in a, you know the the conference their conference champion was ineligible so they yeah it was kind of like one of those perfect storms <laughs> we could talk a little bit about that you know kicking in here in terms of uh performance and policing performance right and uh I tell cops, I'm like, be careful about, about well, you know, who you question, who you judge, because you know, for every one finger you point, right, <laughs> there's three coming back at you. And uh, yeah, we're, we've been known to uh, make some blunders ourselves in the policing profession. Uh, that's right. Uh, you're talking to the king of blunders right here. My teaching's good because the instructor needs it the most. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, why don't we use that as, as a as an opportunity for you to introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you wind up uh, becoming a police chaplain? Sure. Well, uh, back in 1995, I met a sheriff's deputy. We became good friends. He shared some of the things he went through on a daily basis, and I was aghast. I thought I understood, you know, law enforcement giving out bikes at the fair or something or Walmart or something. And, and as I found out uh, what he went through, it broke my heart. And so we started an event back in 1995, we'll talk about later, where that grew in a series of relationships where I tried to encourage police officers, this, that. And years later, I thought, gee, why don't I become a police chaplain? Because it seemed to be uh, the county agency that I was around opened up a chaplaincy program. Um, I applied, wasn't ordained at the time, so I wasn't qualified. Uh, the neighboring jurisdiction in Elkhart found out I was interested, picked me up right away, so I'm on year 20 with them. And so as I uh, got to uh, dive into the police world to see the trauma and the drama and, and the destruction and personal lives and family life, I just had a compassion to do something about it. And and I, so I spent the last uh, 28 years total here just trying to encourage the profession, try to understand what it's up against. And so through a whole series of crazy events, I've served the Delcar Police Department full-time since 2011. I've been there part-time for, like I said, 20th year. Uh, President-elect of the International Conference of Police Chaplains, which is 2,300 chaplains in 14 nations. So uh, if I don't die from a stroke here in the next two months, I'll end up being president. So uh, <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of my uh, a thumbnail sketch. In the middle of that, they decided, uh, that I need to wear the uniform for a season. And so uh, we had a good time there uh, being a res reserve officer. And so I've got a lot of insight from the other side of the badge at times too, so. So what did you do prior to that? So this is kind of like your victory lap, right? This is your second career. What What did you do for your first career? Well, I, it's kind of a backward story. Uh, I'm actually the guy that uh, grew up on the other side of the tracks in a sense. I. I just came from a broken home, quit school, took off hitchhiking around the country, lived with migrant workers, picked oranges, seen people lead out of dumpsters, uh, went on a journey in a Mississippi and Arkansas River in a riverboat, won the United States Marine Corps. They gave me structure. Uh, worked in construction 17 years, didn't enjoy any of those days, threw up a whole series of events, uh, built a house for a guy who managed a nonprofit or who started a nonprofit work with the inner city kids. 
he ended up uh, making me his executive director. So I started working with kids, uh, you know, that were in the south side of our, our town that are disadvantaged and just struggling and trying to, you know, make things work with what they were given in life. And so it was a great experience. And so through that whole thing, then I ended up going to the police world. So it was, it was a great combination of really understanding, you know, some of the most, you know, the neighborhoods we served there that had the greatest challenges combined with police officers making a difference. And so anyway, that, I was a executive director of a nonprofit work with inner city kids. So. So there's a, there's a common theme between some of the guests uh, you may not be aware of this, but not only are you a Marine, Semper Fi, yeah. uh, and we don't call you an ex-Marine, right? There's no, no such thing as an ex-Marine. <laughs> Being an Air Force guy, I learned that early, right? You never call a Marine an ex-Marine. Um, but it's it, so a couple of the a couple of the other guests I've had on uh, Chris Grolnick, who is a uh, he's a active shooter response expert, um, medically retired police officer, and then there's a uh, Randall Anderson. Uh, who's a major uh, down at a Southern Florida agency. Both of, both of them have very similar backgrounds in that, you know, as youngsters didn't take the the, the typical path, but neither of them went on a river bro a riverboat. Like you had your own little Huck Finn, uh, you know, little Mark Twain experience. What was that like? Oh, well, it was great. I, uh, I worked on the on Arkansas River, which goes down to the mouth of the Mississippi, or not the mouth, but the mouth of the Arkansas River, right, the Mississippi. And and so we took barges. We took eight barges filled with coal, bauxite, whatever, and we went all the way through Little Rock, all the way into Oklahoma, into Catoosa, Oklahoma. And so uh, it was interesting. Inland waterways, I mean, you'd be out there. We worked six hours on, six hours off. At the time, I was a partying maniac, so it worked out really great. So, you know, we'd work uh, 30 days on, 15 off. And so, you know, we had money and a place to come home to. So it was like ideal, but it was a crazy adventure. It was. There was a lot of danger there. Uh, almost lost my life in one of the uh, one of the big adventures. But we'd go all the way through the mountains and, and uh, up the river and see deer swimming across, eagles coming out and hitting stuff, fishing. We had a salty old... Uh, cook named Hazel who would beat you to death if with a frying pan, if you let her, but she was a fishing machine with a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. And she was like the houseboat mom. And, and so they're, they're a pretty rough crew there. Uh, but uh, it was, it was a great adventure for a guy who was 19 turning 20. So. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. Um, I've always, I've always been curious what it would be like. And uh, I was just speaking with my wife about this not too long ago. I, I thought it would be, we were up in Fort Wayne and I have seen where others have done it, where they've gone on kayaking trips or canoe trips where they, they drop into the Wabash river up in Fort Wayne and they go all the way down, uh, down to Evansville or, and you know, so travel, traverse the whole state, stop and camp in different areas. And then there are some people that even do the, the, where they build rafts and they do that, they do something similar. Sure. Sure. Well, it's, it's a, it's a it's an interesting you know I've always been a Mark Twain fan just because of his wit and uh you know it's an interesting well my whole life is a great illustration for what I find out in resiliency and law enforcement you know I I come from some of the uh, worst conditions I've been through stuff my little brother died in my arms when I was a kid uh, had to bury one of my own kids and uh, things like that and it's amazing how if you look at all this stuff in the right way it gives you new skills that teaches you things you don't want to learn necessarily, but it makes you more effective lover of humanity. And 
you know, if you use this stuff in a positive sense, it can make a tremendous impact on, on other individuals. So. Well, yeah, that's wow. That's a lot. Um, Michael Easter wrote a book recently called the comfort crisis. I don't, I don't know if you've read this book or not, um, but I found it fascinating. And one of the, the, the underlying theme in the book is that life has, has gotten pretty easy for us. And while sometimes we may think it's difficult and hard, uh, it re if you were to go back even just 50 years and look at the difference between how a person grows up today and how they grew up 50 years ago, and then you go back 50 years again, 100 years in the span of humanity is a blink. And, uh, it, you know, he, he is talked about how these comforts have, you know, in a sense made us soft, but, you know, it's also where we've, we've lost some of these, these resiliency skills and, and the resilience that's built into human nature. And, uh, I'll, I'll talk about another book real quick and I'll, and I'll make a point empire, of the summer moon. It was, it was a story of the, the Comanche Indians and it is a fascinating book if you've never read it, but I read that book and I just, and we're only talking 150 years ago and what it was like to live in America during that time and how difficult it was to actually just survive day to day and particularly depending on, on where you were. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, but, but I think your point's well taken in that is, is, is what we don't realize is, hardship is the very tool that warriors are made out of you know every trial every tribulation has a gift in it every hardship you go through everything every bitterness of the cup that you taste has a gift in it you know i look at the navy seals the only easy day was yesterday right because right. you embrace the suck it makes you into something and it forges you into something you always want to be you know and uh what i think it was landry wasn't it who said that the goal of a good coach is to get you to do what you don't want to do so you can be what you always want to be and you know, I think a lot of times, you know, my personal perspective, there's a God up in heaven who really forges people through the hardships of life. He doesn't necessarily cause them all the time. We choose them sometimes, but in the in, in the response to it, it can either make you a victim or a victor. And so my experience is, is like Arnold would say, it makes me demanded. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Mark Twain said, right, this is the one uh, one of it, one of his many quotes that I love, but my probably my most used and, and famous one, I used to use it with uh, recruits when I was in FTO was, and this was a lesson I learned the hard way myself as a young police officer, but never, never argue with an idiot because they'll just drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Yeah, and, that's, and, that's a classic Mark Twain quote for sure. Well, and then I had a variation on that theme was never argue with idiots because people watching might not be able to tell the difference. <laughs> hey, I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, well, yeah. you, and you know, I, I got my, I, I would find myself in those positions from time to time as a young officer, you know, always wanting to be right. And, and so you get into these silly arguments with people that are drunk, that are high, that yeah. are mentally unstable and, you know, and, uh, and eventually <laughs> you have to find some way to walk yourself back. And when I finally had that realization was like, man. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of another one of my favorite quotes. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. <laughs>
I'm going to have to go back and uh, write all these down. We'll put some of these quotes in the show notes, but all right. So, so you meet this, you meet this friend, he tells you about what policing is like, and it's not what you thought it was. So you take on this challenge of trying to understand it better yourself. Sure. Well, uh, fortunately, I had one of our officers gave me Gil Martin's book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, right when I started. So, I mean, that was back when, you know, he was just getting around and things like that. He actually came to our PD and I watched everybody was aghast that this guy was inside their head. And so that was a beautiful foundation for me, a big gift. And so I started looking at that and then I was fascinated the way all the moving parts were. You know, I'm a kind of global vision guy. I like looking at the big picture and trying to reverse engineer it to solve it, you know. And so I started looking at things. I thought, this is a crazy sport. I mean, just the unique dynamics that are there. And, you know, for me being a Christian, I looked at it in the way evil works, you know, and 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 that was interesting. So uh, to me, just to watch someone who loves the job, they do the job for free. Every cop watching us remember those days. You know what? I'm having more fun. It should be legal. I would do this job for free. And you fast forward 16.42 years later, the average cop last year committed suicide. And I ask guys, I say, do you have the same type of calls that you had at the beginning of the end, the mad, sad, and bad people, my kid won't go to school calls, all that stuff? Sure you do. Do you have the same less than perfect leadership? Sure you do. How, how can you, with one set of circumstances, have more fun? It should be legal. And with the exact same circumstances, you're ready to eat a gun. What is that? And so I thought to myself, I want to solve this. I want to solve this because this is a... This is an honorable profession. It's a heaven-sent mission from my understanding. And, and this isn't the way it's supposed to end up with, you know, suicide, our suicide rates. We had 2.54 times as many cops killed themselves last year, died from felonious gunfire. You, know, you can look at our suicide rates are up 9.7% from the year prior. You know, we can look at divorce, all that stuff. And I thought it's not supposed to be this way, you know? And so I started studying. I want to make myself a student of, of, of the profession and uh, spent a lot of, lot of time in ride-alongs, have been uh, tutored by a lot of cops who have taken me under their wing and eradicated my ignorance. And so throughout time, I, uh, I got a chance to try to wrap my mind around this whole project. And I feel like I got a you know, fairly good grasp on what's happened and what to do about it. Well, those are some pretty sobering statistics. 2.54. And Floyd's gunfire rates are up in 2021, uh, 37%. So that's really a padded number in a sense. That's a lowball number. That doesn't count the cops that go out and take a bridge abutment on because they made a plan. They're going to make sure their family gets, you know, money for the whole project, you know, for insurance money or things like that. So it's a heartbreaker and we're throwing more resources than ever at it, but yet we're still losing ground since last year. Well, that is, um, it's really concerning. And I know, I know this is something that you're incredibly passionate about. And I do want to talk about uh, what your annual uh, camp and retreat that you're doing up in Elkhart, where you're bringing in people from all over the country. Before we get into that, what do you think is driving this? What do you think is the cause? Why do we have a rate of suicide that's rivaling, if not more than that per capita of the today's military? Sure. Well, I, I think there's, there's a two-pronged approach to that. I think the first one is, is why are we having such a hard time doing it or addressing it? And I think, uh, you know, that kind of segues over it and, and what, what it is. But I think, you know, I look at the fact that the job conditions, you be proactive rather than reactive, right? You know, 
if you're dispatched to calls, held over for reports, called in for training, called out for specialty units, subpoenaed to court, whether you know it or not, you get in there and you get told what to do and you react to a stimulus, you know, rather than proactively that's taking the initiative to do things. And I think, you know, that presents a problem because then we have a tendency to wait till it's broke to fix it. And so, you know, oftentimes who do we call in to fix it as psychologists and, you know, not to diminish the work of psychology in any way, but my experience is most cops don't trust psychologists because they don't have a relationship with them and they're concerned it's getting back to the chief. Then I think the third thing that I really look at is we have a tendency to look and say, uh, you know, if you need, are you struggling or you need help or is this happen or that happen? You know, I always use these negative terms and the reality gets to be as an average cop in a mid-sized agency has 180 critical incidents. I mean, what are you talking about? You know, I've dealt with officers had some of the saddest things happen. You got a four-year-old who gets sexually abused by somebody. He sodomized a piece of cigarette burns put all over his body. And I want to kill the SOB, right? And that makes me mentally defective. No, it doesn't. It makes you a normal human being doing an abnormal job. So we can't normalize this job. We got to say, listen, we're going to get through it blow by blow. And I think the fourth thing gets to be is just an understanding that's not in a touchy-feely way of what the nature of the problem is. And, and, and so that's what I've strove to do through a course I teach. But I think it all starts with... Uh, you know, just with two simple concepts that we can talk about more. I think the first thing is, is evil's number one tool is to get you upset about the things that you have no control over till it affects the things you do. As a rookie cop, I didn't give a rip about my chief or my sheriff. As a rookie cop, I didn't give a crap about anything. That call was for you, stupid. <laughs> you know, I got my report approved. Life was simple, and I took I took my sphere of influence that I did with excellence. And that's, that's why my head was in the right place, because I only dealt with what I could deal with. But little by little, I get tired of stupid people tricks and there are stupid ways to do this. And the chief is busy doing this. The sheriff is building like that. And you get your get your mind led away to a bad place. And suddenly you, you quit focusing on any of the good. You couple that with the fact that my job as a cop is I don't I, I can't. You're, I have to learn to assume you're all liars as an investigative tool until proven otherwise. And every call I go into it. My job's not to look for the best, you know, the good thing that's happened in Elkhart. The hundred good things is the one bad thing. And so you get this, this negative focus and it starts to feed into it and evil leads your mind to a bad place. And I think the second principle that I think is so important is, is the fact that the things I don't control, I control my response. And I really believe that, you know, choosing to respond in the right way, choosing to, to see good at choosing to find some kind of way that I can learn and grow through every hardship, trial and tribulation, ultimately that forges you into something. You know, and and if you wanted to, or if you bite on the whole situation, it becomes all one big felony. And next thing you know, there's no reason to wake up every day. I'm fatigued. I'm tired. And I've been there myself. I've been to the point where I didn't think there's, you know, I didn't want to kill myself. I just didn't want to do the same stupid stuff every day. So to answer your question, I think it's a complex intertwined ball of yarn there that takes this job at the beginning and, and fails to understand how you get your mind taken out. And then to realize, to go back and realize where you went off the trail and missed two simple points. Number one, don't let the things you can't control upset you and get you off course. And number two, the things you don't control, control your response. And if you can do those one, two things, that's a big part of resiliency. Yeah. So uh, another uh, piece of data you threw out there, 180 critical incidents on average. Um, and that's probably, you know, that's on average, right? So right, right, right. That's a mid-sized agency and a there was a, a study done in 2015. Chopka was the one. I can't remember the name of all the guys, but uh, but but yeah, that's a, that's a, that was a study done for a mid-sized agency. So you know that's average. So yeah, and 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 I think a lot of times what people don't understand is, is every police department is a little bit different, and it doesn't matter 
how small your agency is and how maybe low your call volume is. It's not a matter of if you're going to respond to critical incidents. It's a matter of how many and how bad is it going to be it, because that's just the nature of policing. Now you get into mid-sized agencies that are very busy and that 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 180 number is going to go a lot higher than that. And then if you get into a major metropolitan area, depending on where you're working um, and wh what type of what type of job you're doing, um, that is, you know, that's unbelievable. That's a lot. And uh, one of I have a an interview coming up with uh, an author. She's a retired police police detective from Tallahassee, Florida, Donna Brown. And maybe you know Donna. She's written several books. Um, but just just in her 10 year time in working in investigation, she worked over 500 homicides or was responsible yeah. for 500 yeah. homicide investigations. Yeah. That's one person. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and, and this is all significant stuff. Just to reference as Chapco, Palmieri and Adams 2015 is a study. So just just for anybody's listening. But yes, you're exactly right. And and the nature of those the nature of those calls, you know, the average civilian has no idea the you know, what a police officer picks up with and what they deal with and, and, and how how their support system gets taken out. And so I think, you know, many of our resiliency efforts, although laudable and they're trying to make a difference, I think we make it touchy-feely too many times. And I think there's a strong warrior way to get cops' attention and help them understand the nature of what they're up against, you know? Well, that's, I want to come back to that because sure. that leads us into a discussion the guardian versus warrior, the rise of the military cop. Sure. Um, and that was a, a book written by uh, Bradley Balco, who's a New York Times author. I don't know if you read it or not. I actually, I thought it, it when I first read it, it was, I thought it had tremendous potential. And then it kind of, uh, I think he missed it. I think he missed a good opportunity to really sure. educate the public at large. And sure. Um, Overall, I, I would encourage I would encourage people to read the book, but um, the difference is it, it's a very small nuance in that you can be a guardian, you can also be a warrior, and I've I've constantly argued that you need to be both, sure, uh, and you need to learn, you, you know, which which bucket do I need to tap into right now to get the job done? Amen. Totally agree. Um. So along those lines, the that 180 number compared to the average citizen, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier in your in your trip along the uh, along the rivers, and let's just go back to Mark Twain and sure. and Huck Finn. You know, survival day to day was not guaranteed. No, and no. there. A lot of times you didn't you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, let alone where you were going to be sleeping. And over the course of a hundred years, we've we've evolved so far, so fast, and we've provided so much that sometimes we lose sight over uh, you know how good that we do have it. Sure. And the evolution of a young police officer, you described it very well. I'll do this job for free. I'm having so much fun. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. And then you hit that two to three year mark. Uh, it's probably a little bit different for everybody, but I, my observations have generally was that two to three mark where you start to see 
the reality of the profession is really sinking in. Like there is, there is a lot of despair in the world. Uh, and, and for many police officers that come from environments that uh, were quite frankly, your suburban typical American upbringing these days, uh, what we think is trauma oftentimes is not trauma at all. Sure. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, it's, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but right. You know, trauma is relative. Sure. Sure. So, Can, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Jump in there. No, no, no. I just had something here I thought might be interesting for you. Okay. So just to illustrate your point about once upon a time in America and where we're at now, you know, I went back, I was curious cause I, you know, I'm a student of American history and one day I, I was curious. I thought, Gee, I wonder what the average age was of the cop that wrote the Declaration of Independence. So I went back and did the research. Guess what it was, brother? 42.9. Okay, so I thought, I wonder what the average age was of the cop, or the cop, of the uh, founding father who wrote the Constitution. 42.6. And I went back and I thought about that. I thought, gee, imagine that. You're up against the most powerful military in the world. You pledge your life, your fortune, your sacred honor for something you're convinced is worth it all. You lay it on the line and put through hardship like you've never imagined. If you study what the founding fathers paid, they lost children, they lost homes, they had lost stuff, they went bankrupt, everything, all because they believed something at an average age of 42. Guess what the average age was of the cop that killed himself last year, brother? 42. And at 42, here you are in the most powerful nation on earth. And so we have 42-year-olds taking on the most powerful nation, outgunned, outnumbered everything else, and they can believe in something that they're willing to give it all. In our day and age, we have the average 42-year-old in the most powerful nation. The domestic defender of our way of life has taken their own lives or quitting in droves. And so I look at that and I challenge people to say, what is that? You tell me what that is. You know, and I, I believe I know what it is, but, you know, and, and so I think your point's well taken is we fail to understand the role of hardship, trials, discipline, all that stuff, how it can work for us for our good, how it's really a gift and how we misunderstand it. And, and, and we get a mindset there that thinks because things are hard, it isn't good. And because it isn't good, it isn't worth living, you know? Well, the, the course, that trajectory, and, and you touched on all those things earlier, you hit that two to three year mark, the reality starts to set in. We're, we're now in an environment where we're surrounded by trauma and negativity constantly. And then we sometimes, and I think in policing in general, we just have not done a very good job of preparing our police officers for what they're going to uh, encounter and what their life, you know, how their life is going to change and the things that they need to be aware of so they can build and that's where resiliency comes from right where they can build this cushion this this protect this protection from against the cumulative effects of stress and trauma over time sure 100% agree and it's going to hit everybody a little bit differently and we, we were talking a little bit before before we went on air um, each year I teach a, I teach a wellness class to new chiefs in Indiana and this, and a lot of it, I use just my own experiences, but I was, I, I told that class and I tell, uh, everyone that I teach this class to that I was very lucky in a, in the sense that very early on in my career, I kind of stumbled on to some things that 
that concerned me in terms of health and fitness and nutrition. I found some of the early data from uh, Dr. Violanti on early mortality rates for policing, but I also had an experience where uh, that a nutrition change really had a significant impact on my physical performance. And so I was able to connect these things together. And then on top of that, came across some information that talked about the three types of stressors that a human encounters, right? physical, uh, emotional, and spiritual. You know, these are the, the, the three types of emotions in when you, when I was when I kind of started breaking these things down, and I and I have a slide that I do in my presentation, but I'm like, man, the uh, the physical stressors that police officers face, the environmental stressors, uh, the emotional stressors, it's I'm like, there's a lot there, there's a lot there that the the average citizen doesn't face, and at the core of all that were a couple of physiological responses, one of them being adrenal stress. Oh, big time, big time. I, I don't, I, I, I just, I think that's probably the most neglected discussion in the profession is, you know, when we talk about 188 critical incidents, let's look at the adrenal response to every one of them, you know, given the fact that I could die at any given moment, because, you know, you know, we, we look at for science stuff on, you know, the reactionary gap, things like that, but yes. You know, what's happening in your body on any given moment, it doesn't matter if you're a rookie or a veteran, is, you know, you got those increased adrenaline dumps all the time and you have cortisol dumps and you have glucose, you know, and that's all stuff to help you in fight, fight or freeze. Well, we don't freeze and we don't flight. So it's about fight. But if I don't fight, then what happens? I don't burn it off. And then that toxic stuff starts to cause adrenal fatigue and things happening. So what I do is then a combination of reacting to things on a regular basis. And I go home and I'm vegged out and then I'm hitting the energy drinks and caffeine and not getting any sleep. And, you know, there's this unhealthy coping mechanisms. We look at alcohol and what that role that plays and, you know, just how it keeps you from going into deep REM sleep. If you know anything about REM sleep, that's where I process critical incidents. So then you got this toxic mixture of all this junk together and you wonder why you end up dead. Uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a real deal. And if we don't take it serious and we don't educate, I've been to, I spoke to a lot of different officers. Over, I was in 11 States last year and out of all those academies, there wasn't anyone who's taught about the adrenal side of things that I knew no one. And I thought, you know, here you are, you have stuff that's killing you. You got hypertension, type two diabetes, you know, insulin, resistance, all that stuff happens is, is a, is a stress response. And if you're not exercising, not eating healthy, you're compounding the whole thing to the point where it's killing you off. And what was one of the studies that was done that six years within six years retirement, many cops die, you know? Absolutely. So you are speaking my language now. And if, <laughs> you know, it's kind of crazy. And um, I was talking with Laura King about this, Dr. Laura King, she was on one of our previous episodes and uh, how she and I never crossed paths in the working world uh, just kind of uh, blew my mind. And I'm having the same thought right now because, again, I was very lucky to come across a lot of this data early on. And uh, and it had nothing to do with policing, but when I, it didn't take much to put two and two together. And I later uh, wound up working with, uh, with a doc out of uh, Reno, Nevada, uh, Steve Pitts, the chief of police, from Nevada had started a, a program called Resiliency as a Path to Wellness. 2012, they were awarded the DOJ, um, uh, for, they were awarded by the DOJ for their program. And in that, 
that's what that's kind of the first time I saw somebody really talking about nutrition and also about blood tests and how to understand what was happening with blood, your blood glucose and your and your insulin levels and your resting insulin levels. And so I was coming from a fitness and a CrossFit and a tactical officer perspective and then realizing that a lot of the things that I that I had been doing to improve my performance on the physical side were actually creating this buffer for me on the mental and the emotional side. Uh, but ultimately, you have to address both. You can't it can't just be one or the other, because when you get out of balance, that's when things start to go wrong. And so just to kind of throw out some some more data for for the listeners. They, Doc Greenwald and Steve Pitts, working with uh, uh, the FBI National Academy, uh, Russ Kleber, who was there at the time, and, and several others, they did a, they were doing blood tests on leaders that were going through the NA. And, you know, they were finding that roughly 60% of police leaders in that, in that, in that environment, they found were insulin resistant and didn't know it. Uh, what is insulin resistance? Uh, arresting blood glucose between 100 uh, deciliters per liter, between 100 and 120. And you know, standard of care will tell you anything above 120, now you're entering into uh, type 2 diabetes range. So there's a lot of officers that are type 2 diabetic and don't know it. Um, right. And so well, you're, you're exactly right, brother. And that's what it's, the, the, the human body is a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing here, you know, and we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, your point's well taken, the fact that if, number one, if I can understand what I can give it nutritionally and, and what I can take it for its natural design and use it, because stress is, uh, stress can be a healthy thing. You and I both know that, you know, there's a healthy side of stress. We need stress to a certain degree, but you have to learn to work with it. And, you know, with the illustration of the FTO with the new rookie, you know, they you learn to control it, but on the flip side, you have to realize what's happened physiologically so you can work with it and burning off adrenaline and burn off cortisol and turn around and give my body the nutrition it needs to repair the damage that's been done and getting the adequate rest to let it process it. And, you know, it's a, it's a discipline. At the end of the day, it's discipline, you know? It is discipline. And um, at the same time, there, there is a, a very strong uh, behavioral psychology component there that these things, it, it doesn't take much to get out of balance. And once you get out of balance, if you don't course correct, yeah. and the analogy I use, and I have a, a funny video that I show in my presentations, but if you if you put a, uh, in a washing machine or a dryer, right? If you put too much, you know, like too many clothes in it or the load gets unbalanced, what 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 happens right next thing you know you're the washing machine that dryer is bouncing all over the room it's making all kinds of racket and eventually it breaks um but that's that's really the same way it is for your body once it starts getting out of balance it's going to do everything it can to seek to rebalance uh and you know those pathways that you're talking about the metabolic pathways cortisol you know it's cortisol is your friend you know it is released during the uh that sympathetic response stress right. stress is not good or bad it just is and right. it, it provides that physiological boost uh when you need to survive in that in that fight or flight moment the problem is is and 
when it gets elevated. And Robert Sapolsky writes a lot about this, right, in his book, uh, uh, Why Zebras, I think is what, Why Zebras Don't Lose Their Stripes. And it's a great book. Uh, Dr. Will Miller, others, you know, he's talked to Kevin Gilmartin, you know, they've, they've talked about this in that, you know, in uh, Dr. Will, he always, he's got a great analogy where he talks about zebras. If you have zebras walking through this beautiful plain and all of a sudden a lion pops up, it's like lion, they all run. And, and then the lion catches one of the zebras and the rest of the zebras are like, oh, they got Fred. And then they go right back down the baseline. <laughs> you know, poor Fred's, get, you know, is lunch for the lion. Right. But the zebras come right back down to baseline. And it doesn't work that way in humans. Humans will stay elevated and it takes a much longer time to come down. And if we don't proactively engage in things like sound nutrition, exercise, just like you're talking about, um, breathing, meditation, <laughs> breathing practices, uh, we will, we'll create a new baseline for ourselves. Right. And well, not to mention, not to interrupt here, not to mention the parasympathetic nervous system and what it does at the, during your home time. You know, I mean, if you don't understand these forces, well, you talk about a prime opportunity for evil to work in my perspective is I go home tired, detached, isolated, apathetic, totally tuned out. Don't want people around in my life. And, 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 and my wife becomes my dispatcher and she thinks I'm big one big slug when I'm really on the downside of, you know, my parasympathetic nervous system is trying to readjust because it can't stay amped up all the time. And so, you know, it's interesting how that plays out in the relationships and challenges. And then that adds to the mental fatigue and the whole thing turns into a giant, you know, if you're not careful, it'll eat you for lunch. Yes, it will eat you for lunch um, and it'll come back for seconds. Uh, and yeah, it'll keep in thirds and fourth marriages. Yeah. And it'll keep coming back. That's the problem, right? It doesn't go away on its own. Yeah. And so now we start talking about some of these crazy numbers. And what we also didn't talk about, you know, 2.254 compare, you know, officers dying at their own hand compared to uh suspect gunfire. Right. Police officers also have an 18 times higher risk of car of dying from cardiovascular disease than the general population right so that's where the average age of a heart of a, of a police officer having their first heart attack is age 49 and yes they are you know they are dying uh, anywhere from 18 to 24 years below the national average so um that's why i'm just i'm so passionate about what you're talking about and what you're doing and i think it's so important well, and it doesn't have to be that way. You and I both know it doesn't have to end that way. I mean, you know, that's the thing about it for me, but we have to do a far better job in the profession of, like you said, proactively educating individuals. You know, I can talk later about this, uh, but, you know, in our department, we work with new hires and spouses and to get them on the same understanding of the nature of the beast so that they can work as a team, not against each other. And then we tell the new rookies from the very beginning that guess what? You're going to go through stuff, but we're going to help mitigate the impact of the job, you know, blow by blow. And then, you know, we're there with critical incidents and, and, and things like that. And then as we go all the way through, you know, there's unique times in your career path where it's a little more challenging than others, but they know it up front. And so we're there to walk with them through that. And we try to get you out the door in a healthy way. And then some of our retirees come back on and serve in the wellness committee because they, they, they appreciate what's being said because 
They never had that. And so there's answers. It's just a matter of us, uh, you know, like Einstein said, you can't keep, uh, you know, doing the, you can't solve the problem with the same things, that, uh, the same stuff that caused it in the first place. You know? Right. <laughs> so. so I was uh, at last year at the National FOP conference, we were presenting this wellness work and this data that we've done with the blood testing through specialty health and um, I was uh, presenting with Dr. Kevin Gilmartin and he asked a question. So there's 500 people in the room and he asked a question, uh, raise your hand if you've gone through training for how to shoot your firearm, you know, all the hands go up, raise your hand if you've, you know, been taught how to drive d defensive driving techniques and all the hands go up. And, and then he asked the question, raise your hands if you've been trained on heart attack prevention. <laughs> and no hands go up the number one killer of police officers cardiovascular yeah. disease and heart attacks uh, oh. at a rate of at least four to one for for officers that are dying by gunfire oh. um and that's that's again going back to what we were talking about earlier it is a byproduct of unresolved trauma and stress in the body right. and right if you so yeah. So how do how do how do we fix this? It sounds like you're on the right path. Well, I think I think first of all that that you know well defines problems half the solution as someone had said right. I mean to me to me it starts out with a, a a whole series of events here. I mean the first thing I do is I come and say why am I doing this job in the first place, you know? And if I understand why I'm doing the job, then I understand you know what I'm up against, which should help to inform on what I need to do to keep it from taking me out, kind of thing. And so. I use a model, I use Sun Tzu in the Art of War as kind of a, a communication device. She talked about, we talked to, started to talk about warrior a little bit. My definition of warrior is an adaptation of, of, uh, of Chesterton's quote, the true warrior fights not because he hates what's in front of him because he loves what's behind him. You know, I think, I think my encouragement gets to be is you have a sacred, sacred calling in the American system, you know? And so, you know, I find it interesting. We looked at uh, if you go into the Jefferson Memorial, you'll see four limestone panels there. And one of them has these familiar words on it. It says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the government. So my starting part is to say, listen, you know what? This country is unique in the sense of this that there's a conviction by our founding fathers that there's a God in heaven who gave rights to man, that there's a threat to those rights. Those tasked with addressing a threat are a group called civil government, and the enforcement mechanism of civil government, too. It's law enforcement. So the question is, what's the nature of the threat? Is it purely a physical one, or what might there be happening? So then we use that to kind of go down and talk about just how, how things happen as a cop and unique challenge you're up against. So, you know, I really, I, I, I got it narrowed down to nine areas that I deal with, you know. As I talk with cops around the country, number one, internal frustrations with departmental leadership in some kind of way. You know, cops seem to, you know, get all bent out of shape out of leadership and somewhere in the food chain. And, you know, as well as I do, it can be all the way up the food chain, including mayors or Oh yeah. Something else, you know? <laughs> you know, the second thing we see is I've experienced that on both sides. Yeah. yeah. So the second thing gets to be a cynicism. We address cynicism. We try to help them to understand to listen. You don't realize it, but it's not a normal job to assume that all people are liars until you know otherwise. That's not normal. Okay. But it's your job because that's an investigative tool. 
But if you're not careful, you go from skepticism to cynicism. Skepticism is something that's healthy to say, yeah, I have to, I, I got to wait, the jury's out till I find out what's going on. Cynicism as I approach it because you look a certain way or you're wearing your clothes a certain way, you're a dirtbag to start with, okay? And you have to be careful about that. I look at the hypervigilance we talked about, you know? Reaction uh, it always loses to action, you know? And so what does that mean? What's that do in a chemical sense? We talk about the reactive nature of the job, just about you have to appreciate that so your wife doesn't become a dispatcher. We talk about fallout from critical incidents. You know, what's the coping mechanism of choice? Alcohol. What does that do for us? We talk about family issues. You know, they teach me to be in control at the academy all the time. But what happens uh, when I try it on my wife at home? For some reason, I don't get the same results, you know. And God forbid my, forbid my 14-year-old lies to me and I go into cop mode and say something because I can sense he's lying to me. I, you know, I, I forget the relationship there. You know, we talk about, you know, stress and, and the unique challenges of stress, fatigue. 53% of all cops get less than six half hours sleep a night. Well, guess what? You know, the illustration of sleep is what? I, can you go without food for a day? Yes. Can you go without food two days? Yeah. Can you go without water one day? Yes. Can you go out without water two days? Well, try going without sleep for one day. Try going out with sleep for two days. And sleep has such a significant role in, in our mental health and, and our repair and taking those nutrients you reference and put them in a healthy place. And then, of course, we got the social media and stuff like that. So, my solution is, is is to try to help the new hires to understand, hey, kid, here's what you're up against. And I know you don't appreciate it right now, but here's some veterans I'll tell you, you need to pay attention. And then we have monthly shift training where we take these principles and keep it before so they can build into the organization understanding, okay, don't forget, don't forget, this is happening. And then, you know, we try to turn around then and work with spouses, do the same thing. You know, spouses, significant others are your canaries in the mine in a sense. You know, they know what's really happening to an individual. And if you have a good working relationship, then guess what? You, we can start to try to bring some encouragement before things go south, you know. And then we worked at, where, you know, along with a peer support element, mental health professionals and, and chaplaincy. And so we have a multifaceted approach that has an educational component that walks with them during the journey and then helps them to get out the door, hopefully in a healthy way. And then and then to try to mitigate the impact of the craziness blow by blow. So that's that's kind of the least in my mind, what the promised land looks like. I love it. I love all of it. <laughs> and it's of all the things that you talked about there, I want to touch on a couple real quick. 53% of police officers are getting less than six hours of sleep a night. Yeah, that's University of Washington study. So University of Washington has a sleep lab up there and uh, I think it's Dr. Stephen James is uh, eight tours in Afghanistan, uh, you know, and he they do a lot of work for DARPA and and for, you know, to see what uh, human performance. And they've done a lot of work with police officers. And so they've uh, they have whole studies they've done on police officers with varying amounts of sleep, checking the reaction times, things like that. It's just fascinating, fascinating work. But, yeah, according to according to the study was done that uh, less than six half hours sleep and it just you can't you can't perform with that kind of stress without sleep. So um, I, I just, I want to talk about this a little bit because I, you know, I, I owned an operator CrossFit gym for um, a, a regular gym for, I think it was seven years and then a nonprofit gym uh, for another five years. And uh, I, I've, Primarily did it when I started in it, it was really so I could find a space where I where I could have my SWAT officers do CrossFit and then 
and then fellow police officers and then really just kind of uh, blossom from there. But you get people come from uh, from all walks of life uh, that that come through. I'm sure any gym, but you know what? I, you know my observations and and CrossFit really were one thing that really attracted me to it initially was their emphasis on nutrition. And because of the personal experience that I'd had with a good nutrition protocol, good exercise program with a good nutrition protocol, bam you know, my, my results just went, you know, skyrocketing. My performance was, I reached levels I didn't know that were even possible that I would be able to hit. But it wasn't until later that I really started to understand the impact and the value of good sleep. It was in 2008, I was going through the Northwestern Staff and Command School and I was doing the two week on, two week off program. So for two weeks, I was working days in class studying. And for two weeks, I was working midnight shifts. I had three children. My youngest, at the time, I had a three-month-old. And this is at 40 years of age. <laughs> so <laughs> you can imagine, I, I started to have these episodes where there were a couple days, I, I lived 13.1 miles from my driveway to the police department. And there were some days where I was finding myself sitting in my car in my driveway and not knowing how I got there. Sure, sure. And I was like, this is not good. Like what I would tell anybody today, sleep is the number one thing you must prioritize. Prioritize it over exercise, prioritize it even over nutrition. If you're not getting good sleep, uh, you're you're gonna, it's not a matter of if you hit the wall, it's gonna be when and how hard. Well, agreed, you know, attention lapses, there's tons of science behind this, you know, and reduced cognition, like you talked about your mood swings, you know, delayed reactions. Uh, there's a, there's a, if you want to just look at a, for those you listen, if you want to look at a study, go to Lexapol's Feeling Sleepy. Uh, there's a Feeling Sleepy uh, webinar that you can go attend for free and they'll have a lot of interesting stuff. The stages of sleep too is a fascinating study. People don't understand you know, we have officer-involved shooting. We usually have two sleep cycles. Why? Because the nature of sleep is to help categorize memory to, you know, make repair neuron damage and, and, and things like that. And so, you know, the reality gets to be is if you're not getting deep REM sleep because you're pushing yourself to death, you're not processing critical incidents properly. If you're not processing, you get this cumulative effect on it that's destroying you. And 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 if you're drinking alcohol to medicate, then you're keeping yourself from deep REM sleep. And and so, you know, a lot of our habits and our, our we think our stress response or mitigation efforts are really they're killing us. You know, and so we have to, you know, we educate the new guys. We got to work with them along the way and, and help reinforce principles to help them to be victorious. And we talked about it earlier: insulin resistance. Uh, insulin resistance is a byproduct of chronic stress. Um, it, you can have, you can have a really good diet, but if you're not sleeping well and you're not recovering well, you can still be running very high levels of blood sugar. And that is something that people really need to understand because insulin resistance basically leads to all the inflammatory diseases, what we would call Western diseases, uh, cardiovascular disease, primarily a lot of cancers, and then now type three diabetes is another way of saying Alzheimer's disease, dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And if you are genetically predisposed to Alzheimer's, then 
the the profession of that is creating these high levels of stress and if you're not if you're not recovering well um it's not going to turn out well for you you know so that that's the bad news the good news is is that when you understand these things there are things that you can do to mitigate those and Absolutely. and not experience them well and there's just it comes down to simplicity right once again we yes. we talk about the whole function of sleep we talk about exercise we talk about you know the whole thing of of nutrition you know and 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 you know, and 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 dehydrate. You know, that's another thing we don't talk about. The fact that you're getting all these chemicals in you to flush it out because I'm not getting sleep. So what I do, I suck down the caffeine. Caffeine's a diuretic. It keeps me from being hydrated. I'm amplifying the situation when if I can get some decent sleep, I can exercise to burn off stuff. I can eat in a decent way, and I can turn around and 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 uh, you know hydrate to flush this stuff out of my system. I mean that that all works. And uh, just for reference, for anybody listening, if you go to the uh, Buffalo Cardio Metabolic Police uh, Occupational Police Stress Study. That's a that's a fascinating study of officers, 365 officers in Buffalo, New York, over a five year period, and and they just talked about a lot of the stuff where they you know really observed them and what was happening in their blood levels, things like that. So Buffalo Cardio Metabolic Occupational Police Stress Study. That's a fascinating thing to read. That's, that's uh, I think Dr. Violante's work. Yep, John Violante. Yeah. So, um, all right. Maybe some people will just take the message better if they hear it coming from a police chaplain rather than a police chief. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I got when I was appointed the chief's office, there's a lot of people that were freaking out. They did. They were like, oh, my gosh, the chief's going to make us all do CrossFit. He's going to make us all be CrossFit yeah. athletes. And, uh, you know, that was never my intention. I did put a nonprofit CrossFit gym in our training center. But it was really to provide people a resource. And uh, when I, when I asked our officers to that every year, twice a year, we didn't have a mandatory fitness standard. We were working towards that. And not for the, not for the reasons many people thought, right. You, oh, the chief just wants us to be super fit. Well, I do want people to be super fit, sure. but I, I wanted it. Number one, because that's how you that's how you hire healthy and retire healthy. That's that's how you uh, you know maintain the the level of health that's that's going to lead to a good life. Nobody right. wants to be sick, no. um, and there are there are things that we control uh, control, and there's things that we can't control. Fitness is one of the things that we can control. Sure. So. Why do you think it why do you think there is so much resistance in the policing world um, to creating fitness standards and fitness protocols inside of police departments? Well, I think in a general sense, I mean, you know as well as I do, and I hate even saying this because I love cops, but I think sometimes you you could give them a, anything on a silver platter at times and there'd be somebody complaining, you know, you can, you can go to bad form as a chief, you know, and get them a pay raise, this, that, everything else is like, it wasn't enough or it wasn't this or wasn't that, you know, so I think you're going to get a certain amount of that. But I, I think the big thing gets to be, is we got to educate while they're young. It's like anything else, you know, we, 
we have two elements in the culture. We have the new guys coming through, which have a whole different temperament and personality, and they all want to be chief in two weeks and all that stuff. But but then we have the veteran cops who have been there for a long time. And what I found really help, is helpful is you get the new hires and start taking things through the pipeline and help educate them. Here's why it's important because it's going to kill you. And I assume you want to live. Okay. And here's why it's going to eat up your relationships if you're not careful. And here's why all this stuff happens. And then we turn on, get the veteran cops engaged to say, you know, you know, kid, if you don't listen to them, you end up like me. And so you get this, you know, you kind of get some benefit. I tell people all the time, you're my second chance. Don't blow it. You know? And so, you know, I, I can take all the stuff that I've learned the hard way. And if I can help you come through the ranks, then guess what? It's cathartic for me, number one, but number two, it's a benefit to you. And, and, and I think we just have to start working as a team to say, listen, we're our brother's keeper and, and uh, you know, exercise is a part of it and exercise is needed because you get a good knock them down, drag them out fight that goes on for more than two minutes. And and I haven't found anybody yet who didn't think it was a good idea to exercise. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the great thing is, is that you can find good exercise in a lot of activities that will also be fun. Uh, but also have some job relevance. like Yeah, like well, that, let me say, not to interrupt you here, but being a chaplain, you said to listen to me sometime. Passionate yep. sex is a great stress reliever, okay? If you can, I'm just telling you right now, as a chaplain who's an expert in my field, okay, if you have a, a, a just a, a good uh, romp in the sack will burn off calories and give it stress. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, if you can use that to say, I was listening to these two experts talk about the field and they said that, you know, your your wife or husband, is, you know, jumping in and putting a trapeze in your bedroom is going to help, then, you know, please use us. <laughs> that's that's going to be the, um, that's going to be the title of this podcast is <laughs> have more. <laughs> the secret to higher performance. <laughs> <laughs> so that, it'll get the most it. views of any podcast that i've that i've done to date without, without a doubt yeah well but it's it's important though i think that you know even look on the flip side i think there's an element to this what about our support networks at home you know we talk about educating cops and so what about the spouses significant others you know a big part of this whole equation gets to be is if we i think we do a big disservice to the whole profession if we don't help those who don't, they don't cost us anything as an agency. Okay. Spouses, significant others come along with the package, right? And right. if we can help educate them, help them to be advocates. And most of them are wired to be, want to be a support network, but they don't understand what they're up against. Number one, and number two, what to do about it. If you can take those two needs and fill them, then guess what? You start working together as a team and you know, that's going to, that's going to have a little different set of outcomes too, from my experience. Well, and just from a an advisory perspective, if if you're wanting to have a nice romp, but you can't because you have erectile dysfunction or uh, something similar to that effect, that is a symptom of a problem that's going on upstream. That is that is a cardiovascular problem. That's um, true. So that's, true. that's an endothelial health symptom. So that's true. Uh, sure, you can take some medic medicine to to fix it. In the short term, but that should that should the red flag should be going up the pole. No, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you should be wondering about what's causing that. Um, oh. That's that's time to get a blood test done. Um, oh, through, seriously, uh, I can't overemphasize that. You know, I'll, I'll yep. pitch up for you because. What he's talking about here, folks, in the show notes or whatever, if you can get a blood, you get a blood panel that's done, they're going to show you 
in advance. A lot of fascinating, fascinating. I heard a podcast a while. Joe Rogan, for instance, uh, most of you are familiar with Joe Rogan. There was a guy who got involved in his life. He used to work in the insurance industry, and this guy predicted how long people would live just based on blood panels. He would sit there and see certain markers that over time, if, if you didn't deal with it, it was going to cost you your life. And so there's things that they can look at in blood panels to see where you're heading a certain way and give you give you a, a path that you can undo that. And, you know, your body will respond well if you take it serious and, uh, and, 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 you know, look at the writing on the wall there if you, you know, not make it a reality. So, yeah. And, and so a nice little segue there. And uh, we've done a previous episode with uh, Matt Martin, who's a, uh, uh, one of the founders of Precision Health Reports, where we do testing called the police panel for people that are uh, in the performance protocol program. That's That blood test comes with part of the program. But even, uh, you know, in the presentation that I did with Dr. Greenwald from Specialty Health in Reno uh, and Dr. Gil Martin was The Blood Doesn't Lie. That was the name of our presentation. And and we we talk in depth about uh, the seven lines of data that we look for in a, in a comprehensive blood test. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into all that right now, but if, but it's great to hear somebody else say this, like get your labs done, know what they are, get them done early in your career. So you always have a benchmark to work off of. So you can see what the cumulative effects of stress might be having, you know, how they might be impacting your physiological health. And that, that peak under the hood, I think is, is incredibly important. Absolutely, absolutely. I think if I remember right, you quote me, but I think Simon Sinek's podcast number two two five. I think it was, if if my memory serves me right. But fascinating, fascinating. You listen to that one right there, and especially when it gets to Joe Rogan part and the fact that he he was going to die in a short amount of time. They did emergency intervention there, and and the guy tripled his lifespan by just a, you know taking those markers and taking them serious and adjusting. So, well, and and you know the reality is that. Um, we're we're under a lot of stress and stress uh, that that elevated cortisol it has that physiological response that actually drives unhealthy behaviors it it drives a craving for sugar so we can talk about some lifestyle things here um you if if you're underslept and you're overworked and you're overstressed your body is is going to crave more glucose. Your brain is going to be seeking out that energy. And, and so you will wind up reaching for food uh, that's close to you and that's easy to do that your brain looks at it from an energy perspective. It doesn't necessarily look at it from a taste perspective. And now you have food manufacturers that understand this and they intentionally designed food to be more palatable and even hyper palatable. So when you eat food, they call it the bliss point, right? When you bite into a potato chip or a certain piece of food, it gives you maximal pleasure, but through the right combination of salt, sugar, and fat, uh, food engineers are building these things. And for cops, it's bad enough for anybody, but for cops, this makes it particularly dangerous because you're on a night shift and now you're hungry. You didn't pack a lunch. You didn't prepare. So you've got limited options on what you're going to do. So you have to have a plan for for how you're going to eat. But you reach for that chip, or you walk through, you walk through uh, the police department, and somebody's, you know, some a nice community member has brought in cookies. A nice community member has brought in donuts, and 
you've got all these snacks and things that are available and we eat these and we get that nice little sugar rush, that dopamine response, and then we reach for it again. And then we get the inner, these highs and lows, uh, the insulin crashes, we get hungry, we reach for more uh, simple carbs, simple foods, simple sugars, things that are going to, that are going to give us energy in the moment. And over a day or two, not a big deal, but then a week and then a month and then a year. That's, that's why that, especially when you're working nights, you've taken that belt out one notch, two notch, three notches. Now you've gone from 180 pounds to 200 to 10. And now, now you're in the cycle and it, it's going to take a concerted effort to really break that cycle. And if you don't, everything else gets harder. Um, the stress has a longer effect. It makes it more difficult to sleep. And you were talking about it makes it harder to get deep sleep. That first 90 minutes of sleep is the most important. It's where your your brain goes into a deep cleanse. And then, it, and then when you go into that REM sleep and that structured sleep where you're, where you're storing information that you've brought in throughout the day, that's why when you're tired, like just like you said, it's hard to make a decision. Uh, it's your reactions are delayed. You can't recall things as as you might normally be able to recall things. It's because the scaffolding is not getting built during sleep and things aren't getting stored the way that they're designed to be. So it's a vicious cycle. For sure. For sure. And so, you know, the you know, it, it just comes down to, to to educating yourself and to, and like we talked about, some, some simple ways you can do it. I mean, to really simplify things, I think we talked about six things here because I don't want anybody to be depressed because it doesn't have to be this way. We're just trying to <laughs> we're just trying to share that there's hope. But you know, number one, from my perspective, is we would take the things that are out of our control. And, and you, you can't listen to the swan song. I can't listen to what's happened in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, all that stuff, and let it upset me here. I can't let the things out of my control affect the things in my control. The things I can't control, I control my response. I can learn to grow. I can help try to milk skills out of it. You know, I get enough sleep. If I sleep well, then guess what? I get rid of a lot of stuff. If I exercise, I burn off cortisol and a bunch of other junk that's happening to me. If I hydrate on a regular basis, and then if I eat nutritionally, I mean, if you take those things right there, I can guarantee a radical transformation of your life as a cop. And it's not that complicated. It's just a matter of understanding the importance of all those uh, disciplines. Reach. <laughs> all right. So the good news is there's something you can do about it. And the, uh, uh, Doc Cromwell, he's the founder of Precision Health Reports. He talks about this when you get those blood tests back and the numbers don't look so good. Um, he, he he always says, he has a saying is like, okay, now you know, and it may be scary, but it's only scary if you stay there. That's so, right. it, you know, now you've got the information. It's And that's what, you know, cops tend to be very action oriented types of people, right? right. Uh, now I have, now I have the information um, now I, there's something I can do about it. So good segue, good transition. So tell us what you're doing, um, in your annual retreat that you're, that you host. Sure. Well, each year we have a conference where we bring in, uh, those who have tasted the bitterness of the cup, whether it be in combat or craziness as a cop or something else. And, uh, we have a conference called breaching the barricade conference. Uh, we bring in speakers, uh, they deal with, leadership, uh, family life. Uh, this year we have uh, 
Craig Sawman Sawyer, Navy Six or Navy uh, SEAL Team Six sniper, uh, just a good dude. We have a uh, uh, we bringing in Tom Lemmer. Tom Lemmer is one of the former deputy chiefs of Chicago PD. Some of the best leadership training you ever see. We have Dave Funkhauser is another excellent leadership stuff. We have uh, Heidi Hogan. Heidi Hogan's a law enforcement spouse out of Kansas. We'll have whole segments there for spouses, significant others, and understanding, you know, the nature of the job, what you can do to keep your family strong and healthy. And then uh, we also have um, Andy. Andy was on your show earlier. So yeah, Andy so, Hughes. Uh, Andy Hughes is, uh, he uh, was a, a good old Southern boy, just a gentleman and a half uh, out of Dothan, Alabama. Um, he uh, was with the Department of Homeland Security for Alabama. I think it was his last gig, but uh uh, he just a uh, good guy. So we'll have all these people come in on the Friday conference. And so we'll feed you all kinds of wonderful things happen there. Then the next day we have literal state fair for cops. So we have a 330 acre secure campus right across the line in the Sturgis, Michigan. Uh, we have knife throwing, tomahawk throwing, battle axe throwing, spear throwing, longbow shooting, rifles, pistols, cannons, machine guns, skeet. We had a 50 cal mod deuce range there. We have a drive-by target shooting competition with 900 cc razors. That's airsoft, so nobody gets killed. Be ripping around there. We have five thousand dollars worth of bounce houses for the kids and slides and all that stuff. We have fishing competitions. Uh, we have uh, all the food you can eat all day long. So it's a it's a state fair for cops. And uh, your first thing in your cops is, "What are you guys up to? You want something?" And it's like, no. What it is is you got a bunch of people in the northern Indiana, southern Michigan area who know the significance of your job, that if we don't keep cops in the fight, we lose America. That's the reality. And so we'll do everything we can to encourage you and your family. Uh, Friday's conference has a nominal fee. We're giving Indiana law enforcement training credits for it. So we have seven hours of that. And then Saturday's appreciation day is all free. And you come out there, uh, uh, we have, uh, you have to bring your ID because we have perimeter security done by retirees. And you come on there with your family and you have more fun. It should be legal. You're out there going crazy, just thinking you got to be kidding me. I must have died and went to heaven. And so uh, you guys come up there and we'll just have, uh, we'll do everything we can to honor you, to celebrate your role as a law enforcement family and to give you resources that are going to make all the difference as well as uh, give you a day off where you can realize that there's a community that loves you. And uh, this is a heaven sent mission and uh, you're well-respected and loved by a big portion of the community. They're just busy working and they don't have time to cause drama. So do you have a campground there and people uh, can't? We actually, we actually might have one. If somebody gets a hold of me, you can find my uh, contact information. And But if they get a hold of me, we actually have a, we, we might have a campground this year. They're the, uh, the 330 acre. Uh, uh, well, that, they actually do have a campground. So I have to figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to work that out. That's a good question. So we'll, we'll get you a campground if you need one. So, so one of my uh, previous guests also as names, Eric Reynolds in, um, He's a uh, uh, retired police officer from Florida, and he he online he's got a uh, a Twitter handle called Keto Five O, and he talks really about his nutri- a lot of the things that we talked about. He's a really good example of somebody that's experienced high levels of trauma and stress. He was he got shot in the line of duty, was he was involved in a police action shooting, um, and. Uh, you know, some of the stress and, and the byproducts of that, you know, led to weight gain and some depression and other things. And then he, he really got, he really took control of his nutrition, made some positive changes and really turned things around. But when he, so he's a fascinating story. When he retires, he takes his young family during COVID, they buy a, a fifth wheel camper 
and they just hit the road. And he started a program. There was a, uh, there was a documentary out there. It's called cops and campers. So check him out and I'll put you in touch with him. But for listeners, he, uh, he, he kind of just creates the, you know, this, I don't want to give away the story, but there's an incident at a campground that he's at that kind of, uh, leads to him creating this event along with a few others where they're, they're just creating this, uh, an opportunity for police officers to get together in a very informal environment and really just kind of let their hair down a little bit and, and be themselves and with their family. So it's kind of cool. Now he talked about being up in Elkhart. Why? Because, uh, what is Elkhart, Indiana home to? RV capital of the world. So RV capital of the world. So if you're a camper, if you're someone that's interested in this, I think we could do a twofer here. Like you can come in to uh, breaching the barricade. You can have a weekend where you get to have more fun than you've had in a long time in, in a very safe and fun environment. Uh, get some education. And if you're a camper, yeah, you can take a look at some of the uh, the the best camping gear manufacturers in the world. Yeah, there you go. So there anyway, go. Let, let I, I told him to reach out to you. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Well, just let us know how we can make it a reality, too. I know people are in tight budgets. One of the beautiful things about uh, Friday's event is uh, lunch is included, and uh, then Saturday, food's included all day long, so you can, you know, graze, refill, graze, and and as long as it's only totally healthy, and then we'll work you out so we can stick with the theme of this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> well... Listen, I, I tell people adhere to the to the 80, 20, 90, 10 rule, right? Okay. Um, if every if out of every 10 meals you eat, if nine of them are really good for you, then you can have fun with one. There you go. And if you exercise a lot and once you get to a point where you're where you're running optimally, then you can really kind of go seven or eight out of 10 meals. So you, you still want to avoid the things that are that are not good for you, like. Uh, sure. seed oils, fried foods, things like that. But that that's for another show. <laughs> so the other program that you're involved with, uh, you mentioned it earlier, but maybe just uh, touch on it again on your, uh, the program that you do uh, based on the principles of Sun Tzu. Sure, sure. Well, it's entitled uh, uh, Sun Tzu and the Officer Resiliency Mindset. So it's uh, normally uh, the full course is a seven hour course. We have a four-hour version. Uh, we'll be doing it with the uh, National Gang Conference in South Bend this year. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, what I do is I basically take Sun Tzu in the art of war. Sun Tzu was a warrior, lived in 544 B.C. He was a master of warfare. Uh, we use his uh, epic war tome, the, the art of war, as a, a baseline of understanding for anything. They use it in business groups. They use it in this, that, everything. And so the, I take principles from Sun Tzu in the art of war and show cops how to and not a touchy-feely way, but a strong uh, war, uh, way how to uh, how to overcome what they're up against. So Sun Tzu said, for instance, all warfare is based on deception. That I want, you know, I don't want you to know what I'm really going on, what's really going on there. If I'm strong, I want to appear weak. If I'm weak, I want to appear strong. He said, the second thing you want to do is you want to study your enemy and you want to look for their me- their frame of mind and their character. If there's ways I can exploit that, he said. The third thing you want to do is you want to carefully accommodate yourself to your enemy's purpose. You know, what are they trying to pull off? 
what are strategic vulnerabilities in their mission? And he said that armed with that information, you want to get in there and you want to lure them out in the ambush because I don't take a superior force on with an inferior one. I turn around and I work on you to get you out. And then I pound you and to get you to quit without a fight. And so I use those principles in a resiliency form to show you what you're up against, the nature of the battle, how your mind's taken captive, how I make that journey from a cop who's having more fun should be legal. And I get lured out there because of, of mindsets or things I misunderstand and how your spouse or significant other gets lured out of mindsets and thing I understand and how you're taken out to bad frame of mind mentally and how to the point you're given up. And, uh, and so uh, we've seen a lot of wonderful things happen with across the country. And um, I had the privilege of sharing a condensed version of it last year at the national concerns of police survivors. They're uh, uh, wellness and trauma conference. So I got to share it a couple of times there, but uh, if anybody's interested, I'd love to talk to you more. Like I said, it's a seven hour version, the full version. I can pull it off in four hours, but anything less than that, we'd have to take chunks of it. So, Well, if, if you haven't read the art of war, then that should be uh, one of the next couple books that you read. I think it's, it should be mandatory reading for every police officer. One of the principles from Sun Tzu that really, that really, um, has stuck with me over the years. It's based on the principle, really. It's it's um, prepare yourself first uh, before you go to war. Right. Uh, that you know that way, victory becomes inevitable. Uh, but if you go to war and then try to prepare yourself, it's too late. You've already lost. Um, and so when you think about and I and I like to think about that from a wellness and a resiliency perspective. In that, do the little things every day, create some good habits, some good lifestyle habits, prioritize sleep. It doesn't matter what shift you're working. Um, you know, begin each day with the end in mind, and that should be build eight hours of sleep into your day. Protect it with, with everything that you can. And then from there, figure out what you're going to be eating and build your schedule around those two things and get your nutrition and exercise built into every day. And it doesn't have to be from an exercise perspective. You don't have to go out and do CrossFit every day. Um, just a couple things. Keep your, keep your, your muscle mass up, keep your aerobic capacity up um, and, and find things that you enjoy doing. And it really is as simple as that. It sounds, it sounds sometimes, you know, it seems like a, like a big barrier to get over, but it's really simple. And for people that have been doing it that are successful, seek those people out. If you're if you're struggling with it, find the people that have been doing it and doing it well for a long time and and ask them how they do it. Amen. Um, any closing thoughts, Jim? Anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Well, I think I, I just want to encourage everybody here. You're doing a noble job. I mean, the, the heart of this, the whole this whole country and our way of life, uh, you're the frontline defenders of it. And and I'm just telling you right now, there is real evil. We didn't talk about the spiritual element, but I'm, there's real evil in the world. And I got news for you that you there's a God up in heaven who put you here for such a time as this. He didn't make you cowboys, didn't make you medieval knights. He, he put you here because you're as men and women for the hour. And if I could, Patrick, I'd like to close with one story that means a lot to me. I think it would close it out nice. Please, yeah, please do. Well, I, I love the story of John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams was our sixth president. He was, uh, he's the only president who went, uh, went from being a president, he lost his reelection bid and became a congressman again. And so he was an ardent abolitionist. And uh, 
as an our abolitionists at the time, U.S. didn't want to deal with slavery, so they had a gag order from the House for that anyone spoke on slavery wasn't acknowledged. For eight long years, John Quincy Adams talked about the evils of slavery, and no one paid any attention to him. And somebody come to him one day, and they said, "John Quincy Adams, what are you doing?" He said, "You're wasting your time." And you know what he said? He said, "The duty's mine; the results are the Lord's." But Louis Gormert, congressman from Texas, talks about the rest of the story. He said at the end of John Quincy Adams' tenure, there was a freshman congressman came in, uh, lost his reelection bid, was only there for a short time, but him and John Quincy Adams became good friends. And uh, they just, John Quincy Adams, a crotchy old man, but uh, uh, this this congressman, they became friends. And uh, when John Quincy Adams died in 1847, this freshman congressman ended up being one of his pallbearers and uh, honorary pallbearers. You know who that man was, brother? Abraham Lincoln. And so the point gets to be is John Quincy Adams had no idea, no idea that his passions, what he felt called to do on the earth, he didn't know what's going to happen. He just tried to do the right thing. And he didn't live long enough to see how that affected others. And you as a cop, you don't get measurables all the time. Every person you take off the street, there's you bought Christmas to somebody's life. There's no more crime, this, that. Every time you sit here and, and serve someone in their darkest hour when they need a friend or need somebody to be there for them, you're bringing life and hope. And I just want you to know that you're doing an honorable thing. And the big thing gets to be is don't let it eat you up on the way there, your health. But just uh, try to take some of the things we had or we talked about today, implement them there, and uh, uh, just know that you're making a big, big difference. So don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Amen. Great message. And what I try to tell people, one of the, you know, if you're not sure what to do, there are people out there that can help you, uh, that can, that have been there and have done that. So don't ever be afraid to uh, look for a coach or a mentor because there's, there's a lot of people out there that want to help you because it is incredibly important work and we need good people to come into the profession and we need the good people that are in the profession to promote it. Uh, moving forward and you know, we got to stop with the uh telling our loved ones to do anything but be a cop <laughs> and yeah. uh you know try to get try to get people back in that's that's how we're going to get our way out of this uh, recruitment and retention issue sure um, you know we got we got to advocate for ourselves so it's been it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show um i can't wait to uh get this one out there in the universe. So for people that are looking for you, what's what's the best way to find you? Uh, well, the fall event I was talking about, you can go to thankyouofficers.com. You'll find more information or breachingbarricade.com, B-A-R-R-I-C-A-D-E, barricade. Uh, for me, you can reach me at uh, my PD address is jim.bontrager, B-O-N-T-R-A-G-E-R at Elkhart, E-L-K-H-A-R-T, police, all one word, dot org. Jim.bontrigger at elkhartpolice.org. And uh, I would uh, be honored to serve in any way I could. Awesome. Thank you. And that's going to conclude this episode of the Captimizer podcast. Until the next time, I'm 1042.